Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Right, my name's uh, Mike Gonzalez. I'm a now retired professor of Latin American studies from Glasgow University. Um, I've uh, recently, well, actually two years ago, published um, a, a biography of Jose Carlos Mariátegui, which I call In the Red Corner. The title's a bit odd, but if you go to his house, which is also the museum in Lima, uh, in the in the big sitting room, uh, um, is a is a large red sofa in one corner where Mariátegui, who was um, disabled and therefore not you know, had some difficulty in traveling. But every night between six and eight, there would be meetings in the room where, you know, main activists and indigenous activists and visitors would come to visit him and crowd around him around the red, the red sofa in the corner. So I quite like, that's why I called it that. Um, it's now, uh, I've translated, I've rewritten it in Spanish and the book will come out in, well, I've just heard from them, so it should be out in two months or something like that. I'm sorry, I said I'd send it to you. I'm sorry about that, but it's still in the process of being revised. So, I'll, you know, I'll send you a copy when it comes out, but I didn't want you to get an imperfect copy. Yeah, thanks so much. Right. Appreciate it. Um, as to what I've been doing, well, um, I'm, you know, I'm kind of eclectic, really. And you'll, if, if you look me up, you'll see that I've been involved in doing lots of different things. Most recently, I've written about the red, about what I call the the, the ebb of the pink tide, uh, about Venezuela and so on. I've written a recent, just recently, a book called The Literary Traveler's Guide to Cuba, which is about the literature and culture of Cuba. Um, uh, I'm an editor of the Routledge Encyclopedia of Contemporary Culture and so on and so forth. So I've got sort of, I mean, there's my, my, my work on Latin America, which is partly academic and partly political. I mean, it's, it's always, I've always been involved politically and, you know, so a lot of what I write has been um, political in that broad sense. It doesn't mean that I'm, it's not serious academically, but it means that it often has Two different aspects. So that's me. Well, thank you so much for that introduction. And uh, I guess in that case, we can start with a question. Is it, do you want to start with one? Yeah, uh, I can start off. So just a broad over, overview. Um, you call uh, Maria Tegui um, Latin America's forgotten Marxist. Uh, so that's a that's a short description of who he is, but you know, in, in broader terms, who was he and what conditions uh, was he writing in? Right. Um, let me explain the forgotten Marxist because that's quite important, and some people have been critical of me for saying that. But uh, Maliati was. Um, I'll talk about his, the conditions of his work because that's very important. But he was. As, let me just say, by way of introduction, he died very young. He died when he was thirty-six, uh, in uh, and was 
in in many ways he wasn't isolated but there wasn't he wasn't he didn't have around him a, an existing organization so he, his his personal energy and commitment really is the driving force behind uh, you know for a man who you know he had a he, his leg was amputated he had a childhood injury which meant that he had an amputate his leg was amputated in 1924 and his health was never good and he died in 1930 and yet he was fantastically productive in all sorts of ways i mean the first thing to say is that mariatica was never an academic you know he was a journalist an activist an organizer and really it, it's breathtaking in a way how much he managed to do especially given his you know physical limitations um so but in 1930, for reasons I'd like to come back to, because I think it's very important, Mariatigi kind of, well, he was a prominent, especially through his magazine Amalta, he was highly respected in, in the rest of Latin America and had some genuine influence. But um, he, um, largely because of events in the Comintern, again, which I'll come back to, um, he found himself at that, in the last year and a half of his life when he was in fact very ill you know, really under attack, under attack from the common term. And that has to do with his, with his uh, defense and advocacy of the role of indigenous communities in, in, a, in you know, in a, in, a, uh, in a Marxist perspective and in a political uh, organization. Um, and one of the results of that, this is my opinion, but I, you know, is that in a way the Marxist Mariategui was kind of buried, not entirely. There was always a group, particularly in Peru, who had, you know, who who fought for his reputation and insisted on him. But um, for example, the closest uh, collaborator he had, a young man called um, a young man um, uh, Martinez de la Torre, who worked with him, uh, put together a. Uh, a very important work called uh, Elements from Marxist Interpretation of the History of Peru, but, um, and he had worked with him on the magazine, but in fact, after two years, it became impossible for him to, to continue with that work. And he produced that work, which is a kind of compilation of documents from that whole period. We have a lot to, uh, lot to thank Martínez de la Torre for, but in the meantime, Mariategui, now dead, was reclaimed by people who in many ways represented completely opposite traditions from his own, in particular APRA, which was a populist organization led by Ayala Torre, very important in Peru, but they claimed Mariategui as, you know, a, um, a predecessor of their, of their current of opinion, where in fact Mariategui had spent a considerable amount of time and energy fighting Ayala Torre. They had been colleagues and comrades earlier on, but the last part of Mariazzi's life was characterized, at least in part, with a kind of tremendous ideological battle with the APRA, really, you know, fighting over the influence over the, over the working class in Peru. Later on, others, the Communist Party, for example, claimed Mariategui as a, a founder member, which was absurd and wrong and not true. And then of course, the worst of all was Shining Path, which some years later, 
No, people don't know that the name of Shining Path, the full name of Shining Path, is the Shining Path of Marx, Lenin, Mao, and Mariadegui. You know, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's also it's also appalling that Mariadegui's name should be attached to the operations of an organization which, in the name of revolutionary Marxism, attacked, killed, you know, and uh, and oppressed the very people they claim to be representing. So it's a caricature, but a very dangerous one. Um, but then, and he kind of got buried away. You look as though you know all this already. Uh, you do, do you? You can stop me if it's all too familiar. But anyway, the, what interested me very much though, I'd, I'd, I'd encountered Mariatigi when I went to Peru. I'd read Mariatigi uh, in the 1970s and, you know, and, uh, and I actually went to Peru to uh, to look to try and find out more about his work, I just got a grant for a brief time to go and study there. Um, by one of those quirks of fate, I'd sent over a box of my books and my notes, and it got lost, you know, on the way. So, in fact, I ended up spending that time writing a little book on Nicaragua. But um, but I was always fascinated by by Mariátegui because I had read, like you, I'd read the anti-imperialist perspective. It was the first thing I bumped into, and I was fascinated. But it was very difficult to find any much out about him. Uh, and um, but my but my encounter with Mariátegui was anti-imperialist perspective. But be, but before that, was as a result of my I taught I taught literature. You see, not politics. So I did I did teach politics as well. But my main job was to teach Latin American literature, and I'm a great admirer of the of the wonderful. Uh, Peruvian writer Jose Maria Arguedas, who knew Mariátegui and worked with him. I don't know if you know his work, but it's it's fantastic. He's a well, um, the his novel, his main novel is called Los Ríos Profundos, and I deeply and enthusiastically recommend it. It's a glorious, glorious novel. But anyway, um, uh, maybe I'll explain a little bit why he had a connection with Mariátegui in a bit, but. Um, so through Alguedes, I came to Mariátegui and I admired him and so on. But then I had to come back and go to work and I couldn't. I didn't have an opportunity to go to Peru or to study his work at any great length until much later. But what interested me was the way in which suddenly, after 79, after, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, you know, the crisis of, of socialist organization in Latin America, how for the, and particularly as indigenous organizations began to mobilize and become the principal actors in a kind of post-Soviet age, Mariátegui is suddenly spoken about again, you know, and, uh, and he's claimed by, um, by Morales in Bolivia, by Chávez in Venezuela, and by the movement in, in Ecuador. So suddenly Mariati becomes, you know, I suppose I describe it as a resurrection. Maybe that's not a, a very, maybe that's not a terribly apposite term to use, but that's what I meant when I was talking about him being forgotten. Now the question to why he'd been forgotten, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd quite like to talk about. If, can, can I talk about that now or shall I leave it? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a great, uh, direction to move in right now. Well, I will. If shall I? Can I? I'll just rattle on, and you stop me if 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 you think I need stopping or 
if I'm getting boring or if it's going in, a, in the wrong direction. Maliati's battle with the Comintern, the Comintern, the Communist International at the end of the 20s, took a general line of um, skepticism and rejection of peripheral and marginal uh, social movements, particularly in the what we can now call the third world, um, uh, regarding them as well because you know they didn't, they couldn't, and didn't follow a model based on an industrialized Europe, quite clearly. Um, and um, their general line, for example, on Peru, there was. I'm going to take a step back. There was a, um, a, a first and only well, in the period anyway, the first and only meeting of Latin American communist parties occurred in 1929 in Buenos Aires. Mariatigi, the anti-imperialist perspective, which you've both read, was one, the, one of three documents that Mariatigi presented to the conference. He was too ill to go, but his representatives, Julio Portacarrero and uh, Hugo Peche, who were there on his behalf, tried to present the documents and were treated terribly badly. You know, they were sneered at and rejected and dismissed uh, because the, by then the Comintern line was, the, and it was basically around the question of the um, inclusion and mobilization of indigenous communities as part of the preparation of class organization and preparation for the, their role in the class struggle. The Comintern line was, they were too, I mean, it's crude, but you know, the line was they were really too primitive and backward, you know, to participate in, a, in the kind of uh, socialist organizations that were being, were being proposed uh, through the Comintern, and that therefore they should not be included. That would be, that would be wrong. They were not in, in a position to be included in, um, in communist organizations, and instead they should be sent to organize separate republics. That was the line of the common term. Now, you know, to understand the significance of that, uh, um, I think it's important to recall that, and I will explain this, we'll talk about this more in a minute, that, uh, you know, in, in Mariategui's short but tremendously active life, a central focus was to uh, connect the nascent workers' movement with the indigenous with the indigenous movements, and to recognize the indigenous movement's central role in the creation of any class-based organization in Peru, um, which obviously I you know I regard as absolutely fundamental and absolutely correct, you know. But the Comintern rejected that, and it, it was an argument they didn't just have in Peru; they had with. You know, it would it would communists in India and in Africa, you know, exactly the same general line. In other words, the the model for uh, developing a communist party was based on Europe, the European experience, and uh, if it, if that experience couldn't be directly applied, then it was of no interest. I mean, their disinterest and their and you know the um, the. Uh, sneering attitude of, of many of the leading Comintern people, particularly one particularly odious individual called Arturo Colovilla, who became the leader of the Communist Party, also, you know, did a lot of damage in the Spanish Civil War, you know, but they, so they dismissed that. And the two representatives that Mariategui sent fought pretty hard to be listened to 
but they weren't listened to, they were dismissed. Um, and then now there was a, an argument and there is an argument in the literature, did Mariategui ever form a communist party? Uh, my answer as so I see it is no, he didn't. And he didn't for sp very specific reasons. He didn't form a communist party because he thought it wasn't appropriate. It wasn't time, there wasn't a, a sufficient worker base. Okay, and, and obviously because it would have been, it would have sort of marginalized the indigenous communities for him were a central protagonist and an element in any developing uh, socialist organization. That's one reason. Another reason was that he, he, he saw the, the indigenous communities as being, as it were, culturally predisposed to the building of, uh, of communist organization. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so um, there, there's an argument about whether Mariategui actually proposed the communist party. He didn't, he proposed the organization of, he proposed you know, meetings of communists. He proposed you know, that Marxism should be disseminated and known within the movement. And he, he argued and organized as a Marxist. But he argued, the only evidence is that he argued for a socialist party, which would be a broader based, uh, a broader based organization. Because as you know, and again, there's something else, let me talk about that in a second, is that a central concept in his thinking about organization was the idea of a broad, of a, of a united front. Um, the socialist party could, a socialist party could function in the context of a united front. But a communist party, as it was being spoken about at that time in the common turn, which involved a necessary separation from other elements of the movement, or Mariategui, he said, in the context of a very small workers' movement, a nascent movement, there was something like 6,000 industrial workers in Lima, you know, 60% of the Peruvian population, you know, in the late twenties was indigenous, you know. So, you know, he said that that would simply divide the movement against itself and undermine its, its strength, a strength that would derive from, um, from a united front of all segments of, of, um, of, of the working class. Um, so he fought it and he was denounced for it. Uh, there is a, on his deathbed, you know, deathbed declarations or changes of heart are always a tad suspect, you know, but uh, there's one, somebody who was present while he was dying said that he had on the, at the last minute decided he did want to form a communist party. I'm sorry, I don't believe it. I don't believe it didn't correspond. It, it wasn't consistent with any of his work and activity throughout his previous life. So he didn't, but <clears throat> as soon as he died, for reasons which you may not find as cynical as I do, but um, as soon as he died, a communist party was immediately set up, I think within six weeks of his death. And uh, it, um, a, a really sus suspicious um, individual by the name of Eldosio Ravines was given was made the general secretary of the party. You know, Ravines had been in another organization a year earlier. You know, he, he there's an exchange of letters between him and Mariategui. He clearly did a lot of spent a lot of time trying to persuade Mariategui that he was who he was. 
but in fact his job was essentially above all to end or to bring an end to the strategy that Mariotti had been pursuing throughout his short life. And just in case anyone dies, doubts it, uh, a few years later, Eldosio Ravines became well known for a book in which he described his revisionism, his rejection of Marxism and so on, called The Great Swindle, it was called. Like Ranistafa. So, you know, I have I'm pretty contemptuous of Elosio Ravines. But then after that, you know, the the the, the Communist Party and, and other organizations simply pursued a different strategy. And Mariati then became associated with completely different uh, strategic ideas. And um, in a sense, his name, because he had been significant, his name was used, but opportunistically, cynically by other organizations in trying to claim the credit he, he had gained in the course of his life. So I believe that, right, so that's, that's, that takes that up to there. Are we doing all right? Can I carry on? Anything, does anything, are there any questions that arise out of that or? Yeah, I, I have a few questions. So it seems to I me, you... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems to me that there are three fundamental reasons uh, for why Maria Tegi insisted so much on, you know, this uh, analysis that sort of took class and race um, as like a hybrid consideration. Uh, so number one, I think it's the sheer population size of the indigenous communities um, in Peru. Number two, uh, you know, the interdependence between the backwardness of the mountain region and the development of, you know, industry in, in the coastal regions. And number three, and this is the part that uh, I'm curious about, is uh, almost like the, the proto-socialist nature of um, a lot of the societies that came before, uh, namely the, the Inca Empire. So uh, my question is, uh, you know, what, what about the Inca empire and the way it was organized um, led about it uh, in like this, this proto-socialist fashion? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm very happy to talk about that. But let me, if I may, just talk about something else first. Okay. And that is to say that it's important, I think, to have in mind the, 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 the nature of Peru and uh, the structure of Peru, the economic structure and, uh, and population of Peru, which is the context in which all of these ideas have relevance. You know, it, it's fundamental to understanding a thinker like Maria Digi, and I suspect some of the others you've been looking at as well, to realize that what they were doing was, if you like, taking Marxist theory and, uh, and so on, and considering to what extent it could be applied in non-European contexts. So that the co historical context, and it isn't just Mariadig, it's others of that generation. And indeed, it's other thinkers in that period of incre incredibly creative period in Marxist thinking of the early 20s, whether we're talking about Gramsci or Bloch or, or Lukash, all of them, you know, addressed the question of, um, the nature of the, of the model. You know, the common term 
proposed, you know, the 21 conditions of the, of the Communist International suggested that there was a model for the construction of uh, a, a Marxist, a, a class organization, which would follow the steps and the procedures and the experiences of Europe. Right now, out of because because in a sense it was, we have to see it as part of the of the efforts, part of the 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 strategy of the Russia of the Soviet Communist Party to gather support around the world for its project, so that the you know communists abroad became in a sense agents and spokespeople for Russia for Soviet communism, you know, and defending the revolution. Quite rightly, you know, you, that's absolutely correct. But there was the problem then about whether that model was, if you like, a guide or uh, an, a critically important experience, or whether it was in fact a formula which all communists by definition had to adopt. Now, Mariati was in Europe, he was in Italy, he, um, at, at the most exciting time in Italy's contemporary history, he was there during the occupation of the factories. We don't know, there's some debate about whether he met Gramsci or not. But what is certainly true is that the situation that Gramsci was engaged with was a situation which Mariati experienced directly in Italy in those early years of the 20s. And, um, you know, Gramsci himself talks about the specifics of Italian history as critical components with which to construct, you know, a, 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 not a model, but a strategy of socialist organization. So these external thinkers, these thinkers who like Mariati, you were kind of excluded. It was on the basis that they, the, the, to my mind, completely correct basis that they should address the issue of, of building socialist organization and, and rooting it in the in the context of a specific understanding and knowledge of the historical circumstances it, and social circumstances in which they were building it. Now, if you look to Peru and you say, well, what was Peru? Okay, it's quite correct to see the working class as a central protagonist of a of a socialist strategy. It's also true that there were seven, I think it has six thousand or so industrial workers in Lima. Um, there were I don't know, maybe 20,000 miners in, in, in the mines uh, in the Central Valley, uh, some, another group of workers in the oil, foreign owned oil installations, uh, a large population of people working in the, coast, in the coastal estates producing rice, cotton and so on. And a, but a, and a significant um, indigenous population in the highlands. Well, I think it's right. You, you've read, uh, you, you were saying that you've read the, you know, the, the, the first couple of the seven essays. But what becomes very clear there immediately is that all of those sections are subordinate to and subject to and working on behalf of imperialism. I mean, the, you know, the, the, you know, they might be Indians up in the mountains you know, wearing ponchos and playing the sampogna, but the fact is they were producing wool for an international market, for a global market. The rice and the cotton was produced on estates owned by, well, basically three uh, family uh, enterprises, one of which was Peruvian, one was German, the other one was British. 
um, uh, producing for the foreign market and exporting the, you know, the product onto the foreign market. Um, the mines were owned, the mines were um, worked by indigenous workers recently, who had recently come down from their, from their land to work often, not, not full time, but often for, for, you know, as seasonal workers in the mines in, in the Central Valley, you know, uh, but again, which were owned by, by foreign corporations. They got there on a railway built by a foreign corporation. And then the people in, in Lima itself were working mainly in textiles or in service industries or in the port, but a textile industry that was, was also owned very largely by foreign and in this case, probably mostly by British enterprises. So if you looked at the, where was the proletariat in, in, in Peru, you know? The proletariat was in all of these different places, but the characteristic of that proletariat was it was completely fragmented. There was no communication virtually between the miners, the workers in the Central Valley, the workers on the, on the landed estates, and certainly very little between all of them and the, and the indigenous communities of the highlands, and, and um, not to mention Lima. So, the enterprise, as far when when Mariategui talks about the United Front, it's not a theoretical concept. You know, it is an it is a it is an instrument for building a class organization, and it's an instrument which must be capable of finding um, a method to bring together people who certainly had no very little contact but who came, who were workers, working as it were on behalf of uh, a global market, but isolated from one another. So when you see that in those terms, I think, you know, to talk about a united front, it's not just a, it's not just a mechanic, it's not just a theoretical concept. You know, it's an essential um, instrument for building a movement where no movement existed. There was a working class movement. It had, um, it was, almost entirely dominated by anarcho-syndicalism, you know, with the result that, that um, and, and, you know, they were, they were active and uh, militant, you know, and organized strikes and so on, but they didn't have a, a, a you know, a, a, a wider strategy for organizing across the class. And they certainly didn't have a, have a, a clear political perspective on, the state, the nature of the state, how to build workers' power. That was very remote, you know, uh, which is, but they were very militant and they were fighters. Um, uh, but at the same time, it was quite interesting that in 1916, up in the highlands, there was a movement which you probably know about, led by a man called Fumi Maki, who was actually, a, had been a soldier in the Peruvian army, who led a revolt up in the highlands. Now, it was one of a series of acts of indigenous resistance. So Mariati comes back to Peru in 1923. Right? And he encounters, he's, he's left Peru as you, well, you know about that, that he was kind of semi-expelled, semi-invited to travel abroad. It's not quite clear which, but, and he, but he had been very involved in the first 
um, real strike moment, movement in 1919 in, um, in, in Lima. And he was carried aloft by the strikers because he had edited a newspaper which supported their cause and which they regarded as, as very important. So he was acknowledged and recognized as, as a force and as a leader and as, a, as an influence in the strike movement. When he got back to Peru, he found the atmosphere just a little cooler because um, by then, you know, because the movement was still dominated by anarchists, by anarchism, and uh, because by then, uh, Mariati came back as an enthusiastic advocate and supporter of the Bolshevik revolution, but the anarchists, for reasons I'm sure you know about, you know, were a great deal cooler about the whole thing. In fact, they regarded, there was a deep suspicion of the Bolshevik revolution, largely because of Makhno in Georgia and things like that, you know? So, uh, so when he gave his first, these lectures, you know, um, this course of lectures at the Popular, at the Universidad Popular in Lima when he came back in 1923, um, you know, he encountered some hostility in the, in the audience and he had to fight for his ideas, <laughs> you know. The very last of those, of those lectures, which, um, did you know about them? You know about these, this course of lectures that he gave? Oh God, hang on a second. I've, like an idiot, I forgot what it's called. But anyway, he was, right, I'll take a step back. When he got back, Ayala Torre, his kind of nemesis, was running uh, a people's university, a workers' university. They, this was across Latin America in 21, two and three. There, were a, there, were, there was a major movement of, for the democratization of education and for workers, for workers' education. And they set up a series of popular universities across the continent. There's, they, were, they were often, they were fantastic, a lot of them. And Mariati was asked to give a, uh, a series of lectures on the world crisis, on the situation, uh, the, the political and economic crisis of the world. And he gave his lectures, um, the last of which was a lecture on Lenin, but unfortunately we don't know what he said because mostly uh, the, the, the lectures were kind of reconstructed from newspaper reports and Mariatigi's own notes. But as luck would have it, he didn't leave any notes about Lenin. <laughs> so we don't know what he said, but he came back, you know, arguing from what he had seen in Europe for the necessity and the urgency of building a class organization. But when he looked at Peru and, you know, they, I think it's important to, um, to underline the incredible originality of those seven essays. You know, they came out in 1928, of course, and, and so, you know, it, it was late on, but the work and the writing of them began earlier, you know, and the, and the research for them began earlier. So the first thing he sees is the reality of a Peru where the urgency of a, of a class organization being built is there, but at the same time, the working class is fragmented. There's no central current of agreement around the key ideas that they are isolated. And, um, and so he looks at, at the Peruvian, at the context of Peruvian history and says, well, where are the, where are the sources of, um, where are the roots of resistance, you know, that from which a, a revolutionary organization will grow? And, uh, 
he, he talks about his own ignorance of, of the indigenous world. So um, at these meetings of his, the, the, the first, um, the first uh, I think the first major essay he writes is called The First of May and the Workers' Movement, you know, and, and he sets out there the policy of the United Front, the need to draw together. He said, we are too few to be divided. He says in that in that document, he says, um, you know, we any organization we create must be must have open debate. You know, it can be a, a, an organization with multiple ideas and currents of thought, right? Uh, it can't be an organization which one one uh, position is 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 dominant and and. Um, and, uh, and authoritative, the, the, the debate must go on because we are in the business of creating a young movement. Uh, but he also, you know, by then, I, I, I mean, I, he certainly knew a bit about indigenous Peru, but I think it's probably quite important for us to bear in mind that indigenous Peru was invisible for the rest of Peru. I mean, it was a world apart. Was and is, you know, and um, but the but the complete separation of those worlds, the structures of power were different. Obviously, these were culturally distinct worlds, linguistically remote, you know, geographically remote. So, the knowledge about the indigenous past was limited, and and that what did exist was very largely a kind of, I think I'd probably describe it as. Well, ethnographic, there was the beginning of an interest in, in, in the indigenous world around schools of thought called indigenismo. But there's a question about what the, I'm not, is this going all right? Because you, I, I've got this feeling that you know all this already, but um, um, okay. Anyway, indigenismo, the indigenistas were very interesting and they wrote about the Indian world, you know, but they really wrote as anthropologists, well, as ethnographers, you know, they were fascinated by the difference and they looked at the social customs and so on of the indigenous world. But that's what they saw. And when, you know, the indigenous writers who had begun to write the first indigenous novel in Peru was written in 1887, you know, by a member of the, of the landed aristocracy, you know, and it's a novel really which represents the Indians as exotic. It's actually called, it's called Birds Without a Nest, Avesti Needle. And it's about a romance between, you know, two young indigenous people who um, fall in love, but, you know, it's a romantic fable really, set against the background, the sort of exoticized background of the Andean mountains, you know? Um, uh, then there were others, all of the people who Mariategui knew and respected, and all of whom would participate and write for and collaborate with the great journal that he produced, which was called Amauta. Amauta is a fantastic journal. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. But if you, if you do get a chance to see it, well, you can, if you go to the, the website at Jose Carlos Mariategui, the Mariategui Museum, you can see some examples of the magazine. There's, you know, it's a section of the magazine. And just for you to see it, because it's so, 
it's so it's beautiful, it's elegant, it uses a great deal of line drawings, illustrations. It is very experimental and very avant-garde artistically. So just take a glance at it, you'll see that immediately. And but they all wrote for Mariategui for his journal, and um, uh, Dora Meyer de Sulen was one. But there was a divide, sort of within the indigenistas. There was a divide. There were the kind of sentimental ethnographers who were interested in these strange and exotic people, and who were, well, I suppose, you know, uh, benevolent and charitable in their way of seeing the Indian as a poor. In other words, they saw the Indian's condition as evidence of the misuse, uh, as, as evidence of, of the moral um, kind of weakness of the landowning class. They, you know, the state of the Indian was a way of criticizing a landowning class for its lack of humanity. You know, there was another school which is um, represented by um, uh, a book that Marietti wrote, uh, wrote a, a prologue to, which is very important, called Tempest in, on the Andes, Luis Valcarcel. And this was much more militant, and it was what you might often describe as a kind of restorationist. In other words, this was a society that, you know, we can, we can rediscover and rebuild, you know, and that the Indians will defend themselves by recreating, reviving that past. In other words, almost as if they will, you know, bring back the empire, you know, the Inca empire. Um, Mariategui worked with them and they respected each other, but there was a difference. Mariategui often is accused of being belonging to that school of thought that said, well, just bring back the Inca empire, you know, which is a complete, a completely wrong characterization. He never said that. But he did talk, he did analyze the, the, as you know from the seven essays, he analyzes the Indian world. And what does he find there? Well, you know, the Inca empire was destroyed by the Spanish conquest. You know, we know that. Um, but the, if you like, the cultural and ideological inheritance of the Inca empire came from a society in which some of the um, cultural, structures and cultural institutions and, and, con, and, and cultural um, uh, um, cultural what cultural customs and, and inheritance was expressed in forms see that if there was a contradiction in the Inca Empire which Mariategui addresses it was a, a an absolutely hierarchical system you know at the top of which was the incontestable authority of the Inca and the priesthood around him. But on the other hand, and so you had this you know, absolute hierarchy on the one hand, but the organization of the Incan communities on the ground were internally democratic. The central, um, the central uh, structure, the central institution of the Indian community was called the Ayu. The Ayu will, it would be the equivalent of a, I, I suppose, of a, of a clan. The IU was, you know, essentially an, a form of organization which was internally democratic and which, uh, to which, which owed a lead to which um, every indigenous, every, every 
uh, indigenous person owed allegiance, but the IU owed allegiance to the individuals too. So for example, the IU took responsibility. It divided the land, organized production in a communal way, but also recognized responsibilities for the, for the disabled, for the sick, for the elderly, and took that as, as part of their responsibility. So, you know, Mariati looks at that and says, well, you know, that is a, an organization which has many of the characteristics of a socialist order, of a socialist organization. Collective responsibility, equality internally, equality under the hierarchy, if you know what I mean, you know, which is the contradiction which he addressed. And well, he said, at one point he said in an essay, look, you know, I'm, I'm not, I never said the Inca empire was not autocratic, of course it was, you know, but the point is the Inca empire, he says, is no more. It was destroyed, but the structures on the, the grassroots structures, the foundational structures, the, the cultural organizations remained. And the indigenous communities still lived in within those structures, which were collective and democratic. That's the first thing. And the second thing uh, Mariadegui said is that, you know, so there is, we can talk about socialism in the context of an Inca community, which will make sense of them, in terms of their own traditions, you know. The second part of it is that once you begin to understand the indigenous communities, you realize that they have a long, long history of resistance, that they have struggled and fought against their oppressors from the very beginning, you know. And, um, and therefore to, to exclude what is at that point the majority of the, of, of the Peruvian population on the one hand, the indigenous, and to exclude a community which furthermore, whose own traditions allow, it, allow them to make sense of the message of collective organization, collective responsibility, uh, production for, for, for use, the sharing of, of, the, of the social product and so on, all of which correspond Right, and to exclude them is not only to exclude an important weighty part of the working class, but also to exclude, uh, you know, and, and to, to marginalize a tradition which will enable them to make sense of socialist ideas. Is that, is that sort of reasonably clear? Yeah, that's great. And uh, I actually had a question uh, relating to that. So. Uh, I came across this this idea um, from a, a quote from a East German ambassador to Washington D.C., where he's talking about, uh, you know, the the will to develop good public transportation among uh, the East German government, but then uh, the individual people, you know, still wanted to have like these costly private vehicles. Um, and his, his quote is, we thought building a good society would make good people. And that's not always true. Um, so I, I was wondering how maybe the fact that a lot of uh, indigenous descendants of the Incas, they already have this, um, they, they already sort of have like this consciousness of what it is like to live in a society that is more egalitarian. Um, so do, do you think that's, that's an element um, 
of why it was important to Maria Tegui um, to sort of draw upon the um, Incan foundations uh, looking towards a socialist future, like this pre-existing consciousness of, you know, already existing within uh, egalitarian structures. Can I just ask you just a question? Are we okay for time? I, I, you know, I didn't ask you. You're probably expecting me to speak for five minutes, are you? <laughs> we have, um, oh, I, I have plenty of time. Yeah, we have, we have tons of time. Yeah. Don't be anyway when, it, when time's up, won't you? Okay, let me take this. Um, you see, the, I, mean, I think the central concept uh, in, in Mariategui's um, interpretation of Marxism and use of Marxism is the concept of, a, of myth. And I presume you've talked about that in class, have you, about the mito? Um, it's, there's a very, very good book produced. It's quite a heavy, kind of very careful study produced by a Peruvian in recent years in which he translates the word mito as an anticipatory consciousness. And I really liked that. I thought that was a very clear and good way of, of, of proposing it because the essential thing is what, you know, communities have histories and they have traditions. Um, one of the difficulties, for example, if you look at the indigenous movements of the last, well, the last 20 years, really, the post kind of Soviet, post Berlin Wall period, the, the indigenous movements are fighting the battles that everybody can recognize, fighting for land, fighting for decent working conditions, fighting for social justice. But their references, their symbolic language may often be derived from their own specific history and their collective memory. You know, um, I was in, I spent a little while in, in Ecuador, just fairly brief time and found myself accompanying a group of uh, indigenous people organized by the main indigenous organization, CONAI of Ecuador, and accompanying them to a land occupation. Because I was useless to them as a, as, as you know, there's nothing I was going to be able to do that could help them at all, except maybe talk about what I'd seen. Uh, now, you know, these were people who, you know, were, I mean, they were taking on the Peruvian state and they were taking it on seriously, you know, and taking land from a powerful landowner and challenging the landowner. And when the, when the state troops came, they stayed and they fought, you know. Um, but they did it, you know, their references would often be different. So for example, the, I mentioned the rebellion of 1916, but it, you know, it was called Rumimaki. The man who, who uh, led it was, a, was a, a lieutenant in the Peruvian army, an indigenous man, who then adopted the name of an earlier Inca leader to symbolize his rebellion. So, you know, you have to, people will express their resistance, their rebellion in many ways, and often in reference to their own particular traditions. It doesn't mean the battle's different or less or less significant. So, you know, what uh, Mariategui was always very interested as a journalist in popular culture and looked in popular culture for the ways in which th through what vocabulary 
people express their resistance. I think it's incredibly important when, when we look at an area like, a, you know, a country as, as diverse and as different, a, a region as diverse and different and divided as Latin America, to read and understand the meanings of the language and the symbols that and the symbolic references that people make, you know, and not do what the indigenistas did, which was just say, well, these are strange, exotic references, you know, with funny names. No, no, no. These are people who have a long history. And when they quote the name of Rumimaki or when they quote the name of their ancestors, it's a little bit more than ancestor worship. It is a reconnection with a history which Mariategui showed and insisted and, and said again and again was a history of resistance. So, you know, if you go to the Mapuches now in Chile or to the, the Indian communities in Ecuador, right? Or, the, uh, or the, the current struggles around mining in Peru, often people will use, not only will they speak their own language, but they'll also refer to their own history. So, in other words, first of all, to be the, what, what Mariatiki was talking about was not you know, exoticism or looking to the past. He said, you know, the past is only relevant insofar as it informs the future. You know, he says that several times in different ways. Um, but what he finds in that community is number one, evidence of a collective experience which will make them open to the, 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 the proposals of, of socialists. Number two, you know, a long history of struggle, right, which can co both coincide and coalesce with the struggles of other sections and make sense in a, in, in a culture, in a political culture, which is talking about class struggle, you know. Um, and, and thirdly, and this is, um, this is something in which he coincides. I don't think, I mean, he knew, he read widely, but he, you know, he died in, 19, in 1930. So a lot of the most, uh, you know, a lot of the creative developments in Marxism, you know, occurred later and he wouldn't have known them. He didn't know Walter Benjamin, even though there's his cultural writing is incredibly reminiscent or, you know, echoes with the kinds of insights that Benjamin had, but of course he didn't know. Did he know Gramsci? Well, he almost certainly knew the, the writings of Gramsci around the formation, the foundation of the Italian Communist Party, but he didn't know the prison notebooks because they weren't published until 1933 or 34 or something like that. Um, did he know Lukash? Yes. To what extent, we don't know. Did he know Bloch? No. So in other words, but yet there are resonances, you know, in his writing of, of, the, of their ideas. So what are the resonances? Well, centrally, I mean, it's when, when Lukács talks about the ought, you know, and other thinkers, the creative Marxists say, number one, we have to take account of the real historical context and histories and collective uh, imagination of the, of, of the peoples of different areas and, and make sense of what we were saying, what we are saying in, in the context of that history. That's the first thing. We have to understand that and acknowledge it. The second thing is, he says, but every movement, every movement of resistance has had a concept of its future. 
you know, I mean, because if you like it in in the in in the Stalinist era, you know, the ways of analyzing social struggles shrank. You know, I mean, Lenin and Marx, you know, analyzed them with 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 great depth. You know, but but you know, the cruder, um, you know, post-Soviet analyses and the cruder kind of Marxism that emerged from it would see rebellion only as the direct result of material conditions. You know, people were oppressed or poor or hungry or, you know, forced to use mach inadequate machinery and would resist. So the resistance comes when people are confronted with bad material conditions. But from, from a thinker like Mariategui, and not just Mariategui, from Gramsci and from others, we understand, and it's, it's extremely important, I think, in order to understand why Marxism is a creative, uh, uh, is creative thought, to understand that you know we are, human beings are not simply creatures of their material conditions, not simply conditioned by by their material reality. They are, but not only that. You know, we all know that. You know, men make history, but not in conditions of their own choosing. We also know that, uh, the, uh, I, I love the thesis on Feuerbach, seems to me to say hundreds of things, you know, in 11 short things. And the, the, the clause that says, revolution is the coincidence of the changing of man and the changing of circumstance. That's fundamental. That's what revolution is, you know? And what it means is that in that pe people are transformed in their being in the context of transforming the world. But it, that, is, that dialectic is fascinating. And that's the dialectic that I find in, in, uh, in Mariategui. Because, because, because people don't just apply you know, their muscle against oppressive conditions. There is another element which they have, which is consciousness, which is their consciousness shaped by the many different things that shape consciousness. But I'm going, you're going to think me a romantic now when I say this, but I'm not ashamed. You know, the capacity to dream, to imagine another future, and to, to pursue that future is, you know, central to any idea of, of uh, to any revolutionary con conception, I think. After all, didn't Marx say, you know, that the great, the great contribution, of, the great thing about human agency is that it can transform matter. You know, we can look at a stone and we can transform it to become, you know, I don't know, the, the head of an elephant, you know, because we can envisage that head of an elephant and project it onto the material. Now that's true socially as well. That's true as a, as a, as a social theory as well. And that we, you know, for Mariategui, the confidence in the capacity and of human beings to revolutionize the world is not just because their conditions are so bloody awful they won't have an alternative, but also because they can imagine and construct at the level of the imagination that other possibility. Yeah? You with me? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that was incredible, everything you just had to say. Um, but I think that, I guess, like, I, I have a question from that, which is, in reading uh, Mary Tegui's, uh writing on anti-imperialism, 
I found a very uh, cogent analysis of Peru's condition within something of like, as you said, he never got a chance to read world systems theory or, or any real level of uh, core periphery debates, but he has a great analysis of Peru as a semi-colony. And he talks a lot about uh, Latin American nations being semi-colonial. And as you're discussing envisioning a future, it strikes me to think that the resonance of Ameritigui with respect to leaders like Evo Morales uh, and Hugo Chavez, it seems to speak to something of that condition within the uh, geographic and political system not having changed significantly. So I wonder how much how much that's true to what extent the continuing semi-colonial condition of Latin American nations, uh, whether it's semi-colonial or, or I guess a more term would, would have been anachronistic to Meritigi, but uh, semi-peripheral uh, condition of Latin American nations relates to the fact that he has this enduring influence with, with leaders and, and groups like MAS in Bolivia. Um, and then, yeah, I guess relating him then to the contemporary sphere, how is he remembered by those leaders and how do his ideas inspire continuing action in Bolivia? It seems like, as you were talking about the influence of indigenous communities within MAS is like a very long lasting legacy of Meritagi. So that's kind of what I'm wondering. Okay. Um, I think, um, God, your questions are very sharp and very, very, they, they sound like little questions, but actually they're bloody enormous. But, um, but your question is fundamental. The first thing to say is that the characteristic of the, of, of, of since after, after um, well, after uh, 1989, and particularly after 2000, the context of Latin American political life has been a series of movements of resistance, many of them conducted by indigenous communities. In, in Ecuador, the indigenous organizations, is he leaving us? <laughs> just, uh, um, just he'll be right back. Okay, good. Um, Many have conducted and led by indigenous organizations. Ecuador, CONAI, and Ecuaruna are the two major indigenous organizations which have mounted a struggle uh, since 1990. But let's be clear, they weren't mounting a struggle against some anachronism. They were fighting neoliberalism quite clearly. You know, they were fighting the, the, uh, the mining corporations. They were fighting the, the um, the new landowning classes, and so on. They were fighting very consciously, you know, the realities of a, a neoliberal uh, global world, you know, and, and, but they would often do so. It's one very good example I could offer you, you know, which is that uh, in Ecuador, in fact, all the indigenous organizations, uh, when they speak about the land, they use the word territorio, territory. And territory is a term which is very rich because it doesn't just mean land. Territorio is a place that has a cultural significance, that has a history. And so when an indigenous community talks about territorio, they're talking about the place, what it was like, what history it carries, what culture exists there and so on. It's a very rich conception. 
you know, and so they're fighting for land, but they're also fighting for the, for, for, for the conservation of the traditions and memories that live in that land, you know. And that's very, very important. It's a very different kind of struggle. And that's why it's a communal struggle, why it's communal resistance. So the presence of the indigenous communities in this phase of, of, uh, of mass resistance in Latin America is unusual, you know, and in the post, it's partly because of the, the complete um, uh, disarray of the left, the inability of the left to respond to those struggles has, in a sense, allowed a space for a new leadership, an indigenous leadership, and that's in Ecuador, in Peru, in Bolivia, in Chile, you know, and so on. So that's very important that, you know, the, the relevance of it is because it is the indigenous peoples who have become protagonists in this new phase of struggle. Um, at the same time, it's really important, I think, and this is relates to something that I've written about more when writing about the, uh, the pink tie. If you look at the, you know, at the experience, well, really, let's say from 2000 and Cochabamba onwards, what you see is the, 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 the rise or the, the um, creation of, no, not the creation, that's not the right word, that the struggles are conducted in many ways through organs and forms of organization which are historic. So for example, the, um, what they call the Cabildos Abiertos in Bolivia, which are the open town assemblies, this is a term from, from the Spanish era of the Spanish conquest. You know, so um, this, term, this terminology is a terminology which has been appropriated by the movement we, and, and the asambleas and the mingas and all these terms, which are suddenly newly used in the context of, of um, resistance to neoliberalism, all have their roots in indigenous traditions. So, you know, if people want to find you know, how and where that was discussed in terms of class struggle, then they go to Mariategui because there ain't many other places to go to find that discussion. You know, of course the circumstances are different, but it connects directly with his thought. Mariategui addressed these questions. In other words, you know, very few subsequent thinkers did. And when they did, you know, it was in, 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 in kind of different terms. So. So that's the first thing. I think the idea that, you know, that Latin America, you know, is an indigenous continent, a continent of original peoples, and that their absence, their invisibility in the history of that continent, all right, is an oppression and a denial, not just of their existence, but as in their whole role. Now you see the Mapuches, you know, who in, in, in this, in the 16th century, learned to ride horses to fight the Spaniards, you know, now in the 21st century, you know, are fighting again in their own language, in the name of their tradition. So that's why Mariategui has come back, you know, and why we should celebrate the fact that Marxism has the opportunity to make itself meaningful and relevant, you know, to these new, new struggles. Uh, and, 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 you know, you see these everywhere. I mean, sometimes the, organ, the organizations are different, but, you know, they, they all have, they all arise 
because the 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 truth is it's not a it's not in any way a criticism of of working class movements but by and large the last 20 or so years have not been characterized well since the 90s really neoliberalism quite systematically and deliberately destroyed or undermined the traditional organizations of the working class and ideologically won over some of the traditional leaders of those movements to neoliberalism in one form or another deserting if you like the field of struggle and in into that space came pop you know a movement from below you know and uh, I've, there's a, a fantastic book i've just read about the explosions uh, of resistance in ecuador in the in 2020 it's called el estallido and you know they refer to mariadi in the first page you know because they you know it is about the continuity of struggle, I think, in the first place. The other interesting part of it, and that, you know, the way you slipped in an incredibly complex question into your question, deliberately, I bet, <laughs> um, is the question of the nation. You see, there's, there, are, uh, there are several, you know, experts on, on Mariategui have described his uh, writings or his ideas as national Marxism. I object to that and I disagree with it because from the very outset, everything you read in Mariategui is internationalist. He places the Peruvian revolution in an international context again and again and again. You know, his early writings, you, you, you know, the stuff he writes in those lectures at the popular university, he begins with it, a discussion of the nature of fascism. In Italy, he looks at the Russian Revolution. How does he know about it? Because you know he's in Peru, and Peru was not exactly, um, you know, it's a long, long way from events that are happening, and the communication is is difficult. But um, partly, you know, it was an, an incidental thing. Mariategui is a young man, went to work in the main newspaper in Lima, and his job was to read the cables you know the the news what do you call them the, the, the what's the what's the term for the for the strips of news that came up that the i've forgotten the name but you know what i mean the the cables that uh, were sent from by the news agencies his job was to read them when he was 15 or 14. so obviously he was in touch he was also the other thing is that mariati was an was an active journalist who made his living from as, as a journalist he was a very, very active journalist, and it, it the scope of his knowledge and understanding is really impressive. Um, so, um, so he was an internationalist. But of course, it's a dilemma that arises all the time. What's the relationship? Can you be an internationalist and a nationalist at the same time? Well, no, you can't. But what you can do is locate the nation in the global. And understand, you know, the the, the interrelationship between the two. There's a, a Chilean historian who um, uses a term which I I, I mentioned it in the book. I, I found very useful, uh, which was the concept of nation people. That is not the nation state, not the structures of the national state, but to speak about the nation as, if you like the complex interaction of different experiences and communities in that particular geographical context, you know, without the implication that what you're building is a bourgeois nation state. 
you know? Um, and that I found that kind of useful because uh, Mariactigi talks about Pueblo. He talks about the people. It's a very, it's a very slippery term, Pueblo. You have to be terribly careful because, you know, right-wing populists use it, use it all the time. The left uses it all the time, the people, the people. But, you know, we, we should be able to distinguish, you know, according to the user, what they really mean by it. Um, but El Pueblo, for Mariatigi, is all of those who exist, who, who sell and give of their labor, all of those who are, if you like, excluded from and oppressed by a capitalist system. Now, now one of the most powerful things that, that uh, Mariatigi writes about, and he's withering, is about the, the national bourgeoisie. And one of the reasons he never talks about the, the creation of a nation state, because he analyzes this national bourgeoisie and shows them to be weak, you know, to shows them to be dependent, shows them to be servants of external interests, shows, shows them to be cynical. Right in the, the early, the first two essays of the seven essays. And of course, that leads you then. I, I don't think, I mean, I, I, I saw a couple of Trotsky's book in books in um, Mariatigi's house, uh, but I didn't see permanent revolution. But reading Mariatigi, you could, you know, there, there's what he does say is this bourgeoisie is incapable of developing a strong nation or progressing the economy. It's in, incapable because it's an agent of foreign capital. It's dependent on and subordinate to foreign capital in every way. And you can see that not just economically, but culturally. He says, you know, you, they are they are simply spend their life adoring, you know, the bourgeois culture of Europe. You know, that's what they regard as. And there were one or two rebels, but by and large, you know, they are they are simply uh, servants of, uh, of, 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 of empire, of, of, of external culture. So this is not a bourgeoisie that will ever build a strong independent state. It can't. Now, what does that echo with? Well, to me anyway, maybe it's just, you know, because of my, where I come from, it echoes with the concept of permanent revolution because Mariatiki doesn't deny that the tasks of development will have to be carried out, that there must be a development of resources, that there must be a reorganization of the economy and so on, but, and that the working class can do that. The whole working class can take that task as its own. He says that quite specifically and explicitly. Well, that of course, as I understand it, is what Trotsky's concept of permanent revolution means too which is that the tasks of development can be undertaken without needing to be, to be taken on, without needing to be done in a bourgeois way by a bourgeoisie. They, you know, the protagonist of that process can also be the working class. So, um, so that means that I don't think, I think it's wrong to see Mariatigi as a national Marxist, unless you first redefine what you understand national to mean, because Mariatigi, after all, the example of the of, of the Inca forms of organization underlines the fact that he's not talking about building a bourgeois nation state, but something else, a different kind of structure, society based on different and collect forms of collective organization. 
rooted in a tradition. But in the end, everything he writes is about Peru in the international context, you know, and sometimes, sometimes it can be very surprising how aware he is of what's going on in the world. He died at 36 years old and, you know, you know, and, and, and was ill a lot of the time and so on, you know, so that's impressive. Is there any, I wanted to say a little bit as well, if I can, you bored yet? No, no, we're, we're really enjoying listening. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I yeah. want to say a little bit about Maliatigi as a cultural theorist and historian, as a cultural critic. Can I say that? Can I? Spend... You see, the magazine that he produced, Amalta, is brilliant. It is a kind of forum for ideas and participation from people across the world. You know, most Soviet writers and artists participate and write for the magazine. It's brilliantly produced. It's very avant-garde. I mean, all the 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 um, the actual printing techniques are very advanced, and they echo um, the the experimental art of the 1920s, particularly in the U.S. But um, it, you know, it contains illustrations. It contains reports of struggles. It includes from one of its early issues, uh, a kind of pull out bulletin of indigenous struggle using the, the idea of the workers' correspondence that Lenin used in Iskra, you know, people contribute and send their contributions. Um, uh, there's, you know, kind of his seven essays were all published in the journal too, you know, separately. Um, uh, you know, there is art, it's articles on Trotsky, there are uh, contrib contributions from Europe and from Latin America, and you begin to see that his magazine and his ideas already have an influence. Now we're talking about, well, 1926, 27, 28, you know, already have an influence um, else in the, in, the, in the Latin American left more widely. Uh, Mariatigi uh, had a connection, there was a connection with Sandino in Nicaragua, uh, the leader of the Salvadorian Communist Party, uh, Marti, Parabundo Marti, appears in the magazine, and so on. It died when he died. Unfortunately, there were two issues after his death, and then it wasn't republished. But it's a magazine of real, real, you know, artistic and ideological significance. But just to take on the question of art, he writes a lot about art, literature, um, you know, culture in general, with great sensitivity, really. It's very interesting stuff he writes. Um, for example, my favorite, one of my favorite things that he ever wrote is his essay on Chaplin, which is quite brilliant. It's just absolutely brilliant, the way he connects Chaplin as the kind of representation of the experience of of you know of the poor working class man in the context of uh, in the context of pre-depression America. It's it's a beautiful essay, tender and thoughtful, really sensitive. And he writes a lot of those things. As a young man, he um, he wanted to be a writer. He wrote he he has a couple of volumes of poetry. It's not very good, but a couple of volumes of poetry. He wrote a couple of plays, but. He was in Lima by then. You know, he'd been born in the provinces, to a very in a very poor situation, 
to a single mother who was a seamstress, but he ended up in Lima anyway and got connections in Lima and ended up working in newspapers. And when you look at him, you see he's, he's very well dressed, you know, and obviously because, and that tells you a bit about the company he was keeping because really most of the people who worked in journalism and newspapers and culture belonged to the middle class, you know. Uh, the very few people who came from the kind of background he came from. So he got to know them and he became very uh, involved. There were little artistic circles that met in a particular a particular street in Lima called the Giron de la Union, with a couple of cafes where they used to meet, the artistic circles. But they were dominated, and he was fascinated by this, they were dominated by the, an artistic avant-garde, you know, which was influenced by the kind of turn-of-the-century ideas of, you know, of the meaninglessness of life and the, you know, the... Um, the uh, the, the corruption at the heart of culture and stuff like that. And he wrote a lot about that. And he wanted to, clearly, he wanted to be an artist, but he, he several of his essays on art, his writings on art, analyze what's the role of these people? Because, you know, in other places, in Russia, for example, in North America, in Mexico, artists are avant-garde and, and, and radical. Radical in the sense that they challenge the system in which they live. By and large, the intellectuals of, of Lima in those years kind of turned their back on the reality and, and buried themselves in their art and seemed to have nothing to say. And so Mariatigi looks at this and said, well, that's because they are because they are disillusioned members of a weak and impotent bourgeoisie which has no vision to offer. You know. So that's a very interesting analysis of, of, of art and culture, which he pursues through his time. But he also, because he believed, he's a great believer in the, in, the, in the imagination and its role, as we've already talked about, you know, its role in, in, in looking ahead into the future of understanding the world. He sees art as being an, an important instrument for making sense and understanding the world, and at the same time, for imagining a different future. And so he's fascinated by, you know, avant-garde art as being a, a space for a space for imagination, because for him, Marxism is visionary. Mito is visionary. It is not, you know, a method of analyzing material conditions, you know, only. It is, a, it is a, a method which says that there is a different future present in, in, present in the present, and that future corresponds to the collective interest and collective vision of the working class. But that imagination has first to be freed. And when it is freed, it will produce a society out of its real experience, which will be collective, which will be which will be a society of solidarity that will be a society of social justice, you know, and um, and 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 that's what he saw, caught a glimpse of, in the Ayu, in the you know the Inca form of collective organization of community organization. Well, thank you so much for that for that answer. That was incredible. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? 
Um, no, I, I'm very satisfied with everything we learned today. There are five million things I've missed out, don't you? But that's anyway. I mean, I hope that does that um, does it fit the bill? Does it do the job? Well, I guess I guess the last thing to say is you know one obviously at the end of every conversation, I, I like to ask what else we should read and what else we should you know what books are good suggestions to read on, further on the subject. Then the second was just in a, in in that vein, any other information about Ameritagi that we should know to help inform our understanding that you haven't been able to mention. But really, you were very comprehensive. So, yeah, anything else you'd like to mention? Well, I think, and it seems to me, you've already you're pretty you're you're doing you're pretty well on in your reading. And um, you know, I don't you know just want to give a list of books. I mean, there's one name I, I'd like to mention as a historian, and he, he died some years ago, but he's a very, very important figure. His name is Alberto Flores Galindo, and his work is extremely important. Um, other than that, well, Michel Lowy, the French-Brazilian um, um, Marxist, has a, a, a very interesting, I, I, I'm an admirer of Lowy, and I think he's, he writes very, very well about um, about Mariátegui uh, as a as a well as a romantic revolutionary, he describes him, which I think is fine. I think uh, Mariátegui would have liked that. Um, I, I can recommend that you visit the the site of the Mariátegui. It's called the Casa Museo Mariátegui. It's got lots of references and to to what's being produced and so on. Um, uh, uh, so there's that. Um, well, I mean, no, I think I've probably already said far too much for anybody to take in. So maybe I can just leave it at that and say well, thank you. Immensely enjoyable. Yeah, no, it was it was incredibly uh, comprehensive and and illustrative on our end as well. And I would just my last thing to say is in in your answer, I found very compelling what you're describing as. He has been, there's been an attempt to put him, I guess, in a box somewhat, but reading him, what struck me is very much the universalism of his writing so that he can be taken out of the Peruvian context and applied across Latin America. And even a lot of what he wrote, I see is very applicable for the rest of the world in his, in his understanding of, of national liberation, of, of indigeneity. Uh, is is very universal in that way, while still being very much based on Peruvian conditions. So that's what what strikes me as as so fascinating with him. And I think you did a great job of of uh, explaining that further. Well, excellent. Yeah, I agree with you. I yeah. agree with you very much. Well, thanks so much. Um, we'll continue to be in touch. You have our email. Um, so we'll yeah. Yeah. Very enjoyable conversation. So if there's anything else that you think I might be able to talk about, let's talk again. But anyway, very, very interesting. And thank you. And I've enjoyed meeting you and talking with you. And uh, um, well, presumably this is going, have you recorded this? Yes, yes. yes. So we'll, we'll put it up for the audio uh, as for a podcast <laughs> and we'll send it to you. And, and is the journal going to become a physical journal or is it already? Well, our first edition will be in June, most likely. We're doing it on a semester basis. Um, as for printing it physically, 
we may need to get some more funding to do it. Definitely copy. Keep, keep me in touch, won't you? What you're doing, just keep me keep me in the loop and keep me on your list. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay? Well. Um, just to tell you, you asked me what I'm doing. So, um, many years ago, actually, specifically in around 1973, you know, I was very involved politically around the issue of Chile, and I wrote quite a lot of stuff about Chile over the years, um, yeah, analyzing the coup, where it came from, what had happened, and then looking at it afterwards. And, um, and I suppose in the course of maybe between 73 and maybe the end of the, the arrest of Pinochet in London, I wrote a series of things about Chile. And I just, I didn't forget about them, but it seemed that that had been passed. Well, you can imagine my excitement when about six weeks ago, I got an email from Chile, from a left publisher in Chile, saying, we've been looking for you for a long time. Um, we, uh, your stuff has all been translated and read in Chile over recent years. You imagine, you don't know that, you know, and, um, and we want to republish it in a volume of your writings on Chile. So, you know, that's what I've been doing. You know, the, the translations were, were I, I translated a couple of things that haven't been translated. Translations were really good and somebody somewhere took the immense trouble to translate my stuff. I mean, there's about, they're, so they're quite long. They're 20,000 words a piece or something like that. But so I'm now, I'm really excited because it looks like that is now going to be published sometime in the next couple of months, maybe. And it isn't just having a book published. You know, that's not the important thing. The important thing is because this, this, these are political essays. They're not academic essays, they're political essays. But the, the idea that at this juncture, at this critical moment in Chile, mm. I can be, you know, have, have a contribution to make to the debates that are going now, on now, in the, and in the immediate future. Well, you can imagine that that's, that's rewarding and tremendously exciting. Mm. So that's why I decided I would mention it to you. Uh, when, when it does come out, I'll let you know. Excellent, yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah. No, we, we would love to, to see that as well, because that's definitely a subject we're, we're interested in as well. So, Great. Okay, well, good luck with the enterprise. Sounds really good, and you're obviously doing really good work. So keep on at it, and thanks for having me. Thank you so yeah. much. Have thanks a great rest of your day. Yeah. Bye. Bye.